Um, so welcome. All right. Yesterday at my son's soccer game, um, the other, you're like, oh, we're, we're doing a Ted Lasso start. We are. Um, it's my favorite show. Many of us, I think, during the pandemic, our favorite show. Um, the other team came out and scored a quick three goals, right? It was just like boom, 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 boom. And, um, you know, my son's team is not the best team that ever was, but they totally love each other. It's the sweetest thing. Um, they're just really bonded and sweet. And my kid says that it's the team where everyone is just like the nicest to each other that he's ever been on. And he's been playing soccer since he was three. So that means something, right? And there's a camaraderie and like a mutual respect and also a dedication to the game, to soccer, right? Um, And it lends itself to a kind of togetherness, this camaraderie and the constant practicing and um, the dedication that is not common, right, amongst kids who are 13, let alone amongst adults, right? It's kind of what makes this space really unique is that multiple times a week, we come together, right? Um, We practice, we hold a mutual respect and tenderness for one another. And then something just from those things is created that is bigger than just us, right? In our individuality or something created that is bigger than just us. And that has happened on his team. It's very beautiful to watch. Um, and they often, you know, they practice three or four times a week together, they have games, and then sometimes yesterday, even after the game, that some of them went over to Franklin High School, which is close to our house, and practiced even more. So it was, they're just like really into it, which when I think about it, um, there's this beautiful way in which they're all trusting that if they practice, that they will become more skillful right, on the field, you're starting to get the metaphor, maybe, in playing the game. And I also see how the practice and their dedication to it stokes the fire and the love for the game itself, right, that just in the doing it sort of enlivens um, the practice and the love for the game of soccer itself, or football. And All of this is happening for him and his buds during a time of really great upheaval, right? They just have started to go back to school in the last couple of weeks um, post-pandemic, the first time really being in person together all the time. Um, There's been, it has not been an easy start to the school year. There has been a lot of violence and there's been a lot of bullying the buses aren't running properly here in town because there's a bus driver shortage. So half the time, like 50% of them are late to their first period. And then half the time, 50% of them can't get home. Right. So there's just been a lot of sort of like intensity around this beginning of the um, school year. And, mm, you know, there's like, I think there's a lot of ways in which folks can deal with it. And, you know, that the I mentioned that there has been violence at the school, which there totally has. And I know that his school is not the only one. There's also this weird TikTok thing going around where they pull the um, 
the soap dispensers off the walls and destroy them and then post them on TikTok. It's, it's this like kind of nutty time. And, um, I just am really, really grateful for the fact that he has this team and this practice and this mutual love of doing something together that lends itself toward something that is larger than just all the component parts, right? It's not just the individual kids. It's not just the game. There's something like bigger happening. And okay. So yesterday after they scored three in a row, it was like uh, that other team, the team kind of like woke up, right? And in the first half, they scored a goal um, and they were able to get back. And I think it was like three to one. And then the team, that other team scored another one. And then there was just sort of this like holding that happened, this holding pattern. And they were playing really well. It was lovely. And it was a little bit foosball-y, just this like back and forth kind of thing. Um, and I could feel in myself in the second half, it's 4-1, as the time was dwindling, this sort of giving up feeling like, oh, it's going to be a bad loss, you know, and I noted it. I was like, oh, I really feel I'm feeling this giving up sort of feeling. And one of the other parents asked the sideline ref, hey, ref, what, how much time is left? And the ref said 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, with this new information, right, more information, <laughs> I was like, oh, there is plenty of time. We are getting back in this. So <laughs> I got super invested, you know, and I said to the parents, I was like, oh, there's time left. I'd felt myself giving up. And one of the parents turned to me and said, don't whenever there is time still on the clock, whenever they are still on the playing field, right? Don't give up. As long as they're on the field, there's an opportunity, right? As long as they're on the field, there's an opportunity, and so um, just after that, there was a throw in like right in front of me and I cheered. I just said, hey, you guys got this. How about scoring a couple goals? And then instantaneously they did. And the parents kind of went wild. We were all like, oh, my God, they did it. Maybe they just need to be told to score. you know? And then we were to, and then we were yelling, tie it up, tie it up. And then this other parent looked at us and said, we're still down by two goals, like thinking kind of in the same place that I was prior, right? There's not enough time left. They're going to lose. It's not going to work. They're they're two goals behind. That's too many goals, that giving up kind of doughty place, right? And I said, yeah, and? And then everyone was like, yeah, and? There's still time. They're still in the field. Don't give up. They're still on the playing field, right? And then they scored another goal. And then we were one behind and they didn't actually end up coming up, coming into like a winning place, but it was this really like beautiful, transformative moment, I think, for all of us. Um, and I cannot help but think about how akin to yoga practice this is, right? And I mean yoga in terms of all of the late eight limbs, not just the asana practice, but the practice in and of itself, right? There's the playing field, like in the Bhagavad Gita. There's the doubting that's happening. There's the feeling like um, nothing is going to work, like nothing is going to change, that it's going to be a loss and there's nothing that we can do, right? That, that we have no agency. Um, and all of that happens on the playing field of practice. 
So I went into the text this morning and, um, oh, and just also how a little bit of faith and trust and encouragement and the leaning back into all of the years of practice and skill building that those kids have done, right? That in and of itself also mirrors the yoga practice for all of us. Um, so let's talk about practice. In the Bhagavad Gita, in chapter 6, 6 1, a yogi is defined as someone who does their job with detachment from rewards. A yogi is someone who does their job with detachment from rewards. Okay? Um, a yogi is also defined as one who has attained the goal of meditation, which is the integration of spirit or wholeness at the deepest level. So it's realizing that we are not just this body or this moving mind, right? We're something more than that. And yet we're also this body and this mind, right? Being able to hold that duality in all of its wholeness. And this is interesting because um, I think if a yogi is defined as one who has attained the goal of meditation, right? And has done this job with detachment from rewards. The Buddha also said some interesting things about this, right? Um, So after his great awakening under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha enunciated the four noble truths. First, that suffering exists and is in fact the hallmark of all conditioned existence, right? The, this material world is conditioned existence, right? Um, and second, that its cause is attachment, right? Um, wanting the reward, striving. Third, that it is possible to end suffering. Oh, thank God, those first two were a little depressing. <laughs> and fourth, that there is a path which the Buddha spelled out in detail that leads away from suffering to the cherished goal of liberation, right? Our wholeness. In yoga, in yoga, when we realize our wholeness, that is when we are free. That is when we are free. Um, so, a yogi cannot look upon anyone with malice it says in this chapter six, and cannot harbor ill will toward anyone. Beyond attachment, one might say, right? So if we aren't, um, if we can look upon everyone with an equanimity of mind, right? And we're not harboring ill will toward anyone, then it's what they call um, the samabuddhi, the samabuddhi mind, which means an equanim- a mind that has equanimity words. Um, And yogis see the flame of unconditional love in all beings, right? That spark of spirit in all beings. And can you imagine, this is such a um, beautiful thing, I think, to imagine. Can you imagine the freedom, the liberation that would come, right? When, um, When this expansive love that we're all capable of overcomes like the relational quality, right? Of me needing to be a certain way in order to be a part of your family, so to speak, your large Mother Teresa style family. Mother Teresa said that um, part of the issue 
with our society today is that we draw the circle of our family too small, right? That we don't draw it large enough. Um, and when we begin to find God in everything and everyone without it needing to be a certain way, everything and everyone, squirrels, right? <laughs> our books, right? It said that Deepa Mahu's right there. Um, went around before she would do anything, blessing everything, not just everyone, but everything. Like the airplanes she flew in, um, the person who was pumping gas, right? all the students from top to bottom, everything, the dirt on their feet to the gray hairs on the tops of their heads. Right? That that was how expansive and free her love was. Life goals, right? And Ram Das tells this beautiful story about his dad it's called i think it's called the uncle henry story but i'm totally happy to be corrected on that but he and his um folks at the llama foundation had made this beautiful box um kind of set they were known for that with it was the love serve remember for the love serve remember foundation and it was beautiful and they had chants and poems and questions and answers and um just really gorgeous photos and they put it together and it cost four fifty. And he showed it to his dad and his dad was like um, the head of a railroad at that time. And his dad said to him, well, four fifty. Could you have charged ten dollars? Would as many of people have bought it? And his dad said, Ram Dass said, yeah, totally. Probably the same amount of people would bought it. And his dad said, well, then why didn't you charge ten dollars? And Ram Dass said, well, that's not what I'm doing. This is the fair cost. It's what it costs to produce and then a little bit to cover the effort that people put in, you know, but not more, not more, just enough. And his dad said, well, are you against capitalism? And he's like, no, not against anything. And so his dad will say, what's your problem then with charging $10 and getting more? And Ram Dass said, you know, Dad, you're, you've been a lawyer for many years and you've worked really hard on these cases. And you charge a really, really good fee because you work so hard, right? And his dad was like, yep, I'm a hard worker, totally. Mm -hmm. I charge a really good fee because I work so hard. And then Ram Dass said, well, what about when you um, did that case for Uncle Henry? It was really complicated and you had to work so hard. I'm sure you charged him a really big fee because you, you had to work so hard on that case. And then his dad said, of course not, he's Uncle Henry. And then Ram Dass said, well, you see, that's my problem. Show me one being on this earth who's not Uncle Henry. You get it? <laughs> right? And that's freedom, my friends. When all beings right, are included in the circle of our family, all things, even every single thing. So um, how might one come to such an equitable mind, right, where we're able to see the good in everything? In chapter six of the Bhagavad Gita, the chapter that we're working with today, and you're totally welcome to grab yours later and check it out. Um, Krishna instructs Arjuna on the path of meditation. And I want to read this to you because I think that it is revealing. So if you have, this is the um, translation that I'm using right now. It's good. There's not a lot of dogma. 
Um, so here it is. Hmm. Those who aspire to the state of yoga, right, or deep, deep wholeness, deep freedom, liberation, should seek the self, capital S self. Um, when we're using capital S self, when we're referring to it here, it's talking about that part of us that is unchanging. Right? That is the spark of divinity. Right? That some would call it soul identification. Um, some would call the Buddhists would call it emptiness. Right, where there is complete freedom from desire, from attachment, from clinging, and from aversion. And that from that emptiness rises spontaneous love and compassion because there's no clinging and aversion or need for things to be a certain way. Um, what would the, the Catholics would call it grace, right? Unearned love, right? That a part of us that is always in grace. Okay, there's a little context for you. Those who aspire to the state of yoga should seek the self in inner solitude through meditation. With body and mind controlled, they should constantly practice one-pointedness, free from expectations and attachment to material possessions. And then he gets really specific here. This is Krishna talking to Arjuna. Select a clean spot, neither too high nor too low, and seat yourself firmly on a cloth, a deer skin, and kusha grass. Then once seated, strive to still your thoughts. Make your mind one-pointed in meditation and your heart will be purified. Hold your body, head, and neck firmly in a straight line and keep your eyes from wandering. With all fears dissolved in the peace of the capital S self, and all actions dedicated to Brahman, controlling the mind and fixing it on me, on God, sit in meditation with the divine as your only goal. With senses and mind constantly controlled through meditation, united with the capital S self within, an aspirant attains nirvana, the state of abiding joy and peace in me. Arjuna, those who eat too much or too little, who sleep too much or too little, will not succeed in meditation. But those who are temperate in eating and sleeping, work and recreation, will come to the end of sorrow through meditation. Through constant effort, and this is something I want you to note, it does take effort, they learn to withdraw the mind from selfish cravings and absorb it in the self, capital S. Thus, they attain the state of union. When meditation is mastered, the mind is unwavering like the flame of a lamp in a windless place. In the still mind and the depths of meditation, the self reveals itself. Beholding the self by means of the self, an aspirant knows the joy and peace of complete fulfillment. Having attained that abiding joy beyond the senses revealed in the stilled mind, they never swerve from the eternal truth. They desire nothing else and cannot be shaken by the heaviest burden of sorrow. The practice of meditation frees one from all affliction. This is the path of yoga. A couple things worth noting. Um, 
that in the East, the word for mind and heart in Pali, especially in Sanskrit, it's a little bit different, but um, would be considered the same, right? That they're not separate, right? And after, I think the revealing piece about the Bhagavad Gita, right, is that these intense instructions are given, right? Sit up straight, be still, that practice takes effort, right? Quiet your mind, and then consciousness will be like a flame in a windless place, right? Not airless, you need life, right, to hold the flame, um, but windless, still. And Arjuna, because Arjuna is us in this story, always asks the great questions. And so he speaks up and he says, what if I stray from the path, right? Have I lost it all? Have I lost my connection with God and with love? Um, And then there's this beautiful answer. Hmm. Arjuna, my son, such a person will not be destroyed. No one who does good work will ever come to a bad end, either here or in the world to come. Right? Um, And it's this beautiful, where is it? He said, even among those who meditate. Oh, no, that's not the part that I want to read. Essentially, this is like the... um, Mm. This is the beautiful part in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna tells Arjuna that no effort on the path of yoga is wasted. And in Buddhism, it's the same thing, right? We said it in the very beginning, is that you stray from the path and then you begin again. That the directions in um, these paths that are closely interrelated are not you straight from the path, never mind, you're shut out of the circle, right? <laughs> um, but rather that you stray from the path, you just come back, that no effort is wasted, and that we have the hop- opportunity at any moment to delve deeply into that river of practice that we've created together with our effort. Um, so we live in this time where there is an emphasis on division, right? Not on wholeness. There's an emphasis on anger. There's an emphasis on conspiracy, right? And conspiracy defined as one thinking that they have an answer that no one else knows, right? Some hidden answer to be able to deal with the complexities of suffering, right? Of things changing, right? And we live in a time that is riddled with fear, right? There's a lot of um, stoking fear. There's a lot of fear that is really justified regarding the pandemic and the health of our loved ones and ourselves and our kids, right? And in this time where um, we are highlighting the separation, we're highlighting also just a basic sort of fact about existing in this material life. And that is the fact of um, that when we're in this body, (laughs) 
right, existing in this world, that there is, in fact, a feeling of not belonging that causes suffering. Right? In Christianity, it was um, described in this idea of being kicked out of the garden, right? And to practice mm, is to participate in a remembering, a coming together, I don't think that it's a coincidence that on my son's team, that as they practice together, that a togetherness is sort of stoked and cultivated, right? Um, that they become larger than the sum of their individual parts. And it's a remembering then also as we practice of our togetherness, of our interdependence, of our own wholeness. And it's a cultivating, and this is where we sort of take the next step into spiritual practice, it's cultivating a particular kind of love that is beyond preference, right? To include all beings, all things in the circle of our family, whether we agree with them or not, whether we condone behavior or not, <laughs> right? Um, whether, I don't know, they're unskillful or unkind, right? other beings, that we are cultivating a particular kind of love that is beyond preference. And if we go back to that definition of what it is to be a yogi, right, um, is that we do our job without regard for the rewards. Or if we go back to what the Buddha tells us that suffering is, is that suffering is... Um, all due to attachment, right? So it's loving without attachment and cultivating that particular kind of love, stoking that kind of love. And we have to practice. Right? We have to practice that because it does not come natural. No effort is wasted, and yet now more than ever, an effort toward remembering wholeness and the expansive nature of love is called for. And it may be late in the game, right? <laughs> for the planet, it breaks my heart every day. For the animals, right? For our kids. Um, it's late in the game in so many, so many ways. And yet we're still on the field and there is still time on the clock. Um, I think I'm gonna stop there. I have more <laughs> to talk about our responsibilities as far as practice is concerned. Um, but I'm feeling pretty fervent right now, actually, about our showing up for practice um, and coming every single day to some sort of mindfulness practice or practice on the mat, where if you're here at Free Love, it's probably going to be both, right? So I'm going to pop back in to the uh, burp, burp, burp. to the chat. Oh, you're all still here. Still here. I'm glad I talked for a long time. Um, if you have questions, please let me know. And then we're going to get on the mat and have a beautiful practice together today. Um, yeah, let's do this. Let me know if you have questions. Mm -hmm.